We are epic. We are great. We are remarkable. We are big human beings who can do amazing things. And it's always amazing to see people really owning that and living in that. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns in navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In the show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful? What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life. And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people that will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller Podcast. I'm looking forward to sharing today's episode with you. Before we get into that, I just want to let you know that if you are curious about what the experience is like working with me, or if you've been thinking that you want to be a part of my coaching program, you can join the waitlist, which is kathyheller.com slash waitlist, and we will let you know details and you'll be the first to know about when it is going to be going on presale. So you can go to kathyheller.com slash waitlist and someone will reach out and give you all the details and you'll be in on the pre-sale, which is always a nice little flash sale. So just go to kathyheller.com slash waitlist. Okay. Well, today is awesome because Nedra Glover-Tawab is here. She is a licensed therapist, relationship and boundaries expert, New York Times bestselling author and founder and owner of Kaleidoscope Counseling. She's the author of the book, Set Boundaries, Find Peace, a guide to reclaiming yourself, an accessible step-by-step resource for setting, communicating and enforcing healthy boundaries at home, at work and in life. And since we last talked, she also has another book called Drama Free, A Guide to Managing Unhealthy Family Relationships, and it's coming out tomorrow. Her new book is a roadmap for understanding past family struggles, choosing the right path to break the cycle, and moving forward so you can live your life your way. These books are so life-changing, so go ahead and get yourself a copy. And if you don't already follow her on Instagram, you definitely might want to check that out because she's putting so much wisdom there. Nedra is one of those very special souls. She has so much grace and compassion and empathy. And I think you're going to learn so much from what she has to share with us. So without further ado, please welcome the wonderful Nedra Glover-Tawab. Nedra, I'm so happy you're here. Right before we hit record, I was just sharing with you that so many people come on my show and they quote you and talk about how much of an impact you've had in their life. And I've been watching and and looking at your beautiful energy and the work you put in the world. And I'm really delighted that you're here to have this conversation. Well, I am so excited to be here and to chat with you today. So I feel like it's so big and so juicy that I want to sort of dive right into your book. And I know that by diving in to that, we'll be able to sort of bounce back and forth from maybe what even brought you there and how you got to, to knowing all of this wisdom. But it's just so important. I often say that having spoken now to millions of women around the world, they think that they have sometimes a business issue or a strategy issue. And it's really like a people pleasing issue. It's really a courage issue that has to do with being liked. And it's really like 
codependency in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And if unrecognized or untreated, it really causes us so much suffering. And so I think that it's just really, truly such a gift that you have set out on the mission that you're on. So I want to dive in. So let's talk about this book, Set Boundaries, Find Peace, A Guide to Reclaiming Yourself. Why did you feel in your life that you had to write a whole book about this? Mm. Well, I'm a therapist and I've been a therapist for 15 years now. And as you mentioned, so many of the issues that people are having are actually challenges around communication, particularly communicating their boundaries. And it comes across as work-life balance issues, issues with partners, friends, family members, and so many other things. And when we really talk through them and the things that need to be done, they are boundary issues. It is really us needing to ask for what we want, asking for people to change something or even changing ourselves to be in certain situations. So why is this so much in our blind spot if it's so prevalent? It's much easier to change other people than to think, you have to do something or that you have the power to do something. We live in a very issued society, right? And so many of the issues are other things. It's like, why did someone leave this in the street? We don't necessarily think like, get out of your car and move this thing. It's like, who created this problem and who's going to fix it? When sometimes we are the person who needs to jump in and fix the situation, we need to rescue ourselves is not up to anybody else to do that work. Yeah, that's really interesting. That is very much what I do here most of the time. It's like, well, who's in charge? We're mm-hmm. this thing called like radical accountability or responsibility is not necessarily something that we see because often we see ourselves as a victim of things rather than having some kind of a an idea that we are empowered to take care of things and make things feel better. Um mm-hmm. and, I know that growing up, I really got so good at people pleasing so that I could navigate what was going on in our household, which was really violent and scary. And so I got so good at reading a room so that I could just be safe. But I didn't realize that that was a form of codependency. I thought codependency, I used to think it was when you relied heavily on other people, not necessarily that you really on some level needed everyone to like you. And that's why you were willing to throw out your own boundaries in order to be safe, in order to be liked. Mm -hmm. And I feel like women especially really feel like they can't say no, they can't feel good because it would hurt somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so it's not available. So when you say a guide to reclaiming yourself, what's even possible for us And how do we do that when it feels really scary to our nervous system to take care of ourselves and be in integrity? We are in there. We are in our bodies. We know what we need. We know when we need it. And there was a time, I believe, for most of us that we were more in tune with our needs and we were less fearless about, oh gosh, I want to, or more fearless about speaking when it has been stripped from us, whether that was in infancy and childhood. I think about the ways in which a baby asserts themselves. Often it's crying, you know, and we learn to not assert ourselves when we cry and people don't care about it. So it's always in us to have this, like, I need this, I want this. But somewhere along the line, many of us have had that sort of shut down by other people, by our parents, by teachers, by other adults, sometimes our siblings. It is very subtle, the ways in which we tell people that their needs are too much, whether it is them trying to speak up and we're telling them be quiet or that's not really a big deal or you should feel this way about this thing. We are teaching people that it's not okay to want things. Mm, It's really true. Speaking of being little kids, what made you want to grow up to be doing this kind of healing work? I wouldn't say that I wanted to grow up and be a therapist because I didn't exactly know what a therapist did. I 
thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist for a small portion until I found out that psychiatrists prescribe medication and they don't do very much therapy anymore. I became a student of self-help when I was in high school. I started reading a lot of self-help books and I really liked them. And I watched Oprah and she would have different therapists and psychologists and self-help gurus on her show. And it really started my journey of wanting to learn more about myself. When I started college, I thought there's no way you can make a real career in this. So there's no career path for therapists. You know, there's education, there's engineering, there's these very direct things. And I didn't quite know how to get there. So I did the typical thing. You just pick a major so you could get out. But for grad school, I thought, this would be a really good time for me to start exploring this thing that I really like. And I got an internship where I got to practice being a therapist and it felt like the most natural job I've ever had in my life. And I've had a ton of jobs, but being in the seat of being a therapist, that's when it really clicked for me that this is what I'm supposed to do. This is the thing I'm good at. This is the reason I was drawn to self-help books and, you know, talking through things with people and listening and asking questions like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It just felt like all things aligned in that moment. That's so beautiful. I love that you had that experience and that like you felt that click into place. So often we pursue things that we were our first student. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like, you know, I started this show because I was the person, I was my listener, you know, mm-hmm. at a certain point. Mm-hmm. And so I made it for her, you know, it's like when people are like, who's your target audience? It's like, it's you a few minutes ago, right? <laughs> so what's the piece in this that was for you first? Connection. I think there are so many things that I experienced within my family, within my community and friendship scenarios that I didn't know any other people who would speak about these things. And so to be able to, you know, watch TV shows or read books, it was like, oh, my gosh, this sounds like my mom. Oh, my gosh, this sounds like my my friendship. Oh, my gosh, like that connection around your issues is so important because it's very isolating to experience things. It's very isolating to have family issues or to have issues in your friendship. Nobody really talks about friendship or talks about family. It's just like you have family, you have friends. It's like, okay, what about when you have problems? (laughs) So to hear people speak about problems, it was like, Oh, wait, so I I don't have to like everybody in my family? Wow, that's really powerful. (laughs) Whoa, I've never heard that before because I'm being told you have to like everybody in your family. Family is family. You have to love them. You know, all of these things. So to be given a different perspective, it was like, oh, my gosh, it's not true. Wow. I totally understand. I think like that's one of the greatest human needs is this feeling of like, you are not alone. Like what you were going Mm -hmm. through, not only does it matter, but it makes sense to me too. Like I've been there. Yeah. One of the biggest things, and you talk about this in the book, you know, what does it really mean to set healthy boundaries? I feel like every time I speak with someone about taking another step forward, whether it's saying something to someone in their family or posting something on Instagram or starting a podcast or writing a book or making something, right? Anything. There's always this like, well, what about what people will think, what people will say? And as you say in the title of your book, Set Boundaries, Find Peace, there's really no peace if we're constantly having to win the approval and get the vote of everyone in our family, of everyone on Instagram who we don't even know, like all of it. It's just really maddening, you know, when you think of that, living your life, not on your terms, but so that everybody else is okay. So how do you help people set down the need to make all of our decisions okay with everyone else? Like to make sure that everything we say is okay with everyone else. I mean, that's boundaries, isn't it? Like where we get to have our own truth and allow it to be okay if someone's uncomfortable with what we do or what we say 
if that's really what's best for our heart. So how do we do that? Because it feels very scary. It is very scary. And I think it takes practice. It takes courage. But the most important piece is practice. We have to practice not always making people happy, not always saying the right words. Because sometimes I say the wrong words, but I still say what I think I need to say. And, you know, there's this opportunity to go back and clean things up. Oh, maybe I didn't mean it this way. I think this is what I was trying to say. Like, we don't have to get everything right the first time. It's really hard to understand that you don't have to be perfect in your application. You're just trying things. And it's so hard for us to understand that because we're like, if I learn something, I have to perfect it. If I become a new mom, I have to be perfect. If I start practicing walking, I have to be perfect at it. It's like, no, you don't. You just need to walk. You just need to read a little bit. You need to be, you know, like, I think it's great to get better at this stuff, but we really take even the practice of setting boundaries. I always say it is a practice. To me, a practice is something that's ongoing. It is continuous. It is lifelong. I am still practicing brushing my teeth, washing my hair. I am still bringing you like, I am practicing all of these things. I'm not going to perfect these things in this lifetime, something new will come along and I will have to apply that new stuff to this situation. I'm not looking for perfection and becoming a better person. And it's so simple, but it's so big. Like there really is this need to like, if you're going to say something or do something, if you feel this pressure, it has to be the perfect way to do it or else you can't tolerate your, your own process. Like things are a process. Give me an example of a place where people that you've seen in the therapy you've done and the women that you've gotten to work with, the couples you work with. Give me an example of a very common place where needs and boundaries often would be very beneficial to be expressed and a healthy way to try to do it. Oh, gosh, couples. I think one of the most difficult times in a relationship is when people have children. And what I have seen is this unspoken desire of how things will go. Mm. And couples start to fight because they have these expectations of each other, but they haven't talked about it. And so there's this like, well, he doesn't help with blank or she doesn't do this. And it's like, when did you request this? It's like, well, they should know. And it's like, oh gosh, this this is why we're here because there are all of these things not happening, but also being expected of each other. So the needs come in, like, what are your expectations? Those are the needs. Like, how do you ask someone to I want to work out too, because often women will say like, you know, he, he works out, he goes and does this thing and I don't get an opportunity to do it. No one is stopping them. So maybe just saying, Hey, every Tuesday at five, I'm going to this yoga class on Thursdays and Fridays. I'm meeting up with Sarah to go for a walk, really putting it out there in that same way, because often you're not being stopped, but it's like, you're building this level of resentment because someone else is, you know, enjoying their life in a way that you don't think they should feel entitled to enjoy it. So it's really about talking about what the expectations are, what the needs are for the relationship, because they've changed. You've gone from, you know, being in a situation with two people to multiple people. So talking about those needs is really important. And you talk about in your book, how to even identify our needs. And I think that's really key because often I know in my own past, when I've had that conversation. My husband's like, just tell me what you want. Tell me what you need. I'm like, I don't know how to answer that. And it took me a long time to even figure that out because, and I'm sure that my experience is not unique, but growing up in my house, there was so much abuse and there was so much stuff. And my parents got divorced and there was a lot of mental illness and I was alone a lot. And I don't remember being asked what I needed or even asking myself what I needed. I was just trying to help out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So 
how do we identify what we need? What don't you need? I think that's a good place to start. What isn't helpful? What things don't you like when you're going through certain things? Like sometimes I will say to someone, you know, when I'm saying something, I don't need you to tell me how to feel. I just need you to listen. So my need was discovered in being annoyed by people telling me how to feel. It's like, well, I don't need this. I don't know what I need, but it's not this. (laughs) So I have a headache when you do that. So that's a start. (laughs) Please stop doing that. Please stop doing that. So that's a need. Stop that. That's a need. So sometimes when we're not clear, like, you know what? When I'm upset, I really like a hug. I like this. It's like, what do you do when someone's trying to help you? Like, what do you become frustrated by? Those are actual needs too. It doesn't have to be, I like people to do this, this, and this. Sometimes it's discovered and knowing what you don't like in those moments. Yeah. Now this is a juicy one and it kind of is on the the other side of the, the table, which is like you as a therapist, I'm curious your thoughts about money because most of the women that I meet, have so much shame around charging for what they do. So they're the women. The women in this audience are such good people. By and large, these are the women who are multitasking. They stay up late and volunteer at their church. They Mm -hmm. help their friends. They're there for their spouse. And then they realize at some point that they would like to take care of themselves a little more or to even maybe charge for the thing that they really like doing that they've just been doing for free for so long for so many people. But then the feeling of charging feels so uncomfortable. The feeling of receiving feels so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I say it in regards to being a therapist too, because I have a friend who said to me that for years she charged so little for therapy as a therapist and she had a sliding scale and she wanted everyone to come, but really she didn't feel like who was she to really charge And lo and behold, she noticed that when the couples would sign up, very often they would not come or one part of the couple wouldn't come, the guy or the girl, whatever it was. And she was charging like $40 on a sliding scale and sometimes $20. And then so often they would decide to get divorced and they would find this money for a divorce lawyer. And the minimum retainer was like at least $5,000 to get started or $10,000 and they would find the money. And she said, I realized in that moment, I'm not serving anybody by charging so little because they're not then invested in making sure they come to these appointments. And I said, what a weird, she said, I I thought, what a weird society that they'll spend the money on the divorce attorney, but they won't spend the money to work on this, to come here. Mm -hmm. So she started to flip her whole thought around that. And she started to charge more and people would take it more seriously. I think that that's fascinating and how that relates to the women in my audience, I find really fascinating because there's multiple layers of that, right? Mm -hmm. But just in terms of that piece around being paid and not taking offense if somebody's not okay with that price, but rather allowing yourself to have your standard of what you charge and being able to then call in the person who really can pay for that. That's a really big leap for people. Mm. So I'm curious what your journey's been with that. And I do think that's for sure a boundary, learning how to name your price and be okay with the kind of person that you're willing to take, no matter what the client, right? No matter what the service. Mm -hmm. I think that that's fair. Well, my discipline is social work. That is what my degree is. I'm a master level social worker. And there's this belief that social workers should be low paid, that it should be an act of service almost. And that is the environment we come into with with therapy. How dare you charge $200 an hour? You're supposed to help me. It's like, well, I want to live too. A huge part of the reason that social workers and therapists and helping professionals are burnt out is because of their low pay. Exactly. When they are paid low wages, they have to do more work to make a livable wage. And so if I'm charging $40 an hour as a therapist, I probably need to see about 40 to 50 clients a week. Mm-hmm. 
I can't even imagine holding <laughs> all of that. Well, like, listen, I, I've been there and done it. So you see about 40 to 50 clients a week, 50 minute sessions, and then you still have to do progress notes. You still have to, if somebody has a paper they need signed or if they need, you're talking about a lot of work for $40, right? So you have to see this amount of clients to be able to say, okay, well, I make $60,000 a year, right? <laughs> so I get to make $60,000 a year seeing people at that rate. It when, makes my heart race, honestly, because <laughs> it's, it's just so not sustainable. So my heart starts to race. It's not sustainable. So when you get into a therapist who charges maybe one to $200,000, uh, oh gosh, 100 to 2000, that is ideal, right? Uh, I know, can you imagine? You're like, I, I know. Where's my throne? Yes. <laughs> 100 to $200. Now you're talking about something that's a bit more manageable. Those therapists typically see if it's 100, it's typically about 30, right? You're still seeing about 30. When you get a little higher, those therapists typically see maybe 15 to 25 or so clients, but you still have to factor in overhead costs, of office expenses, licensing, all of these things. So when people say therapy is expensive, I agree. I agree. Therapy is expensive. I also understand why. I think there does need to be more accessible free services, but it's not going to be from those therapists. It's going to be from the system that supports people in therapy. It's going to be insurance. It's going to be policy. It's going to be, I don't know, maybe government subsidized therapy. It's not going to be from these individual taking pay cuts or seeing people for free. But that is the expectation sometimes with therapists. Like, I have this issue. Why won't you see me for free? It's like, I have a light bill and they don't understand that (laughs) I have children. I have, you know, so most therapists aren't making a ton. Even if they're charging $200, they're still not making tons of money. And I know 200 a week or 200 a month seems like a lot. But those people, the people I know personally who charge $200, they see about 10 clients a week, maybe less sometimes. And they still have these expenses built into it. They're charging that much. So I think sometimes when we think about the pricing of things, we have to think about giving people a livable wage, not what they're charging us, but in totality, what this person may be earning. So when I hear about people charging 40, I feel bad for that person because I know the level of work that they have to do to be able to live. And it sounds like a lot of money, especially when you factor in minimum wage, but I don't, I don't think it's being factored in the level of work. It's amazing what people value in our society, right? Because let's say college, for example, you know, there's something about college that people find it's so sacrosanct that no matter what's the economic standpoint, people figure it out. Like you'll see single moms working three jobs to make Mm -hmm. sure she can pay for this kid to go to college. It's like a fait accompli. It's like, we're paying for it. We're talking about so much more than $40. Like we're talking about I don't know, a semester could be $4,000. It depends. Even a state mm-hmm. school, even a community college, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. And then it comes to well-being and mental health. And it's like, oh, well, that's expensive. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like everyone I know has a smartphone and it's like $1,000, you know? And it's like, oh, well, that's not something I can compromise on. But therapy for $40 a week, it's like, like something's really wrong with our system, you know, really wrong. And then you think of teachers, what teachers get paid, you know, like it's ridiculous. Like it barely, like you can't really thrive Mm -hmm. as a teacher financially. Like you Mm -hmm. can kind of get by, but you're not thriving. You have just enough and you're supposed to take care of the future of the generation. Mm -hmm. And I love what you were just sort of alluding to when you said there should be things that are done that are free, right? And I, and I don't mean to hit on such a hot topic, but I think everyone agrees, especially mothers that what's going on with gun control is just absolutely ridiculous. And 
we were talking about it yesterday with my family and I was like, I just had it. Like, I just, I've just totally and completely had it. Like if I hear one more person say anything other than we're getting rid of this situation, like this, this level of it. And my husband was like, of course, and we need to deal with bullying and we need to deal with mental health for every person. Like every person needs it because this is something that has to get dealt with in our society. And I was like saying to him, yeah, well that also, but that's a longer fix. Right. Mm -hmm. But he said, but think about all these people who do things that are, you know, sometimes horrible. Often they have terrible things going on. Like these are people who've been bullied. These are right. And I'm not, you know, so he was like, we have to look at it. We have to look at that. And so I'm curious after you've been, you know, talking with so many people, like, what do you think are some of the biggest issues that are things that we maybe could even help with if we dealt with them in our society at a younger age with human beings across the board? You know, I used to work in juvenile justice and those kids were typically anywhere from 12 to 18. And that was too late. That was too late. 12. If you're are in jail, you serious? At, that's too if late. You're in, if you were in jail at 12 years old, yeah, we failed you. There are very few early intervention programs. There are some, but funding is always an issue. You know, early intervention in the sense of families who are at risk, because we know risk factors for many things, families who are at risk, why are they going home with some sort of wraparound service with a social worker, with a therapist, with someone to support them in parenting? right away. <laughs> like we know, but it's a finance issue. It's a, it's a whole big thing, but those are things that could be helpful. I think that, yeah, when you're 12 years old and you're already in the juvenile system, it is tough to figure out ways to now help you because we have already failed you in so many. And in those situations, there's, you know, family issues, education issues. There are lots of trauma issues. So I would say the earlier, the better, even elementary school, we need more emotional um, and social learning programs. We certainly need social workers in school to help with family members, not just one social worker, but multiple social workers. We need family therapy to be, you know, way bigger than what it is. You know, family therapy, I think is essential, but I don't know many therapists who have practices built on just doing family therapy. Most people do individual, but family therapy could be a really powerful way to help people break cycles. And that's not something that we've really explored extensively, Mm -hmm. especially with like programming, because sometimes even when there is some sort of family component the problem is the person with the problem. That's how it's seen in the family. The problem is this kid who's having behavior issues. And it's like, no, the problem is the whole family. Like this is a symptom of something that is happening. How do we collectively, as me, the therapist, you, the parent, the teacher, the doctor, like how do we collectively help not just the child, but the entire family? So, Gosh, I could go on and on. As you see, I uh... (laughs) No, it's so important because no (laughs) one's really talking about this. I mean, I get very passionate, but it's because it needs someone needs to be passionate about it. Right. And someone who has as much goodness and beauty as you, like, thank God you're passionate about it. When Deepak Chopra was here, he said his greatest work right now is with children and teens because the number two leading cause of death in teenagers is suicide. And he said, that means we've failed. Like Mm -hmm. we've literally failed as a society. If that's a statistic, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And I said, why is that happening? And he said, it's happening because people don't know who they are. You know, this is his work, but he said, who we are is not this story, this narrative, this ego, these problems. We are a soul. We are infinite. You know, the more you meditate, the more you connect with your consciousness, your truth, yourself, the expansion inside of you. But if you've been inside of an environment where there's so much pain and there's so much darkness and everyone around you is coming from ego and fight or flight and they're in their stuff. They can only model for you 
that that's reality, that that's who you are, that that's all that there is. And there's so much limitation in that. There's no real way to access the infinite that is us, that bigger expansive self. And so, you know, his work is helping people really get to know like the truth of like what is inside of each one of us, which is so beautiful. And just hearing what you're saying and how at a certain place, like 12 years old, it's too late. And it is because that subconscious gets wired from zero to 12. They used to think it was seven, right? But now they're saying that more of it sort of gets in there by 12. Like you've kind of created a software program now Mm -hmm. inside this person. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things that I see is this unrelenting sense of I'm not enough. Imposter syndrome, unworthiness. When you meet, let's say women, for instance, who have that nonstop feeling of not being enough, what do you say to her? I think of I'm not enough as I don't know who I am. So many of us are trying to live up to an expectation that is not us. Recently, I told someone that they were trying to live someone else's life. Mm -hmm. When we are in this space of I am not enough, I wonder, who do you think you are? Like, what do you think is not enough about you? Because you, especially when you're looking at people who are like, I feel like an imposter. I shouldn't have this. It's like, you have two degrees. You've been in this role for 10 years. Now they want to promote you and you're saying you don't deserve it. I don't know who does. (laughs) Why am I convincing you that you've done enough work? Who do you think deserves this sort of thing? You are enough because you're being called to do it. So that programming does come from our belief system, you know, not just us, but also the programming we receive from family, from friends, from partners. And we have to unlearn that we are not inferior to other people. We are epic. We are great. We are remarkable. We are big human beings who can do amazing things. And it's always amazing to see people really owning that and living in that and not having all of this pressure around. I don't feel like I deserve it. It's so Uh. funny. I feel like You know, we started this conversation and you were saying how people have come on the show and they're quoting me and these sort of things. And I think like, I've always been saying so many of these things. As I was writing this book, my clients say like, this is stuff you've been telling me. It's like, yes. (laughs) Like, you know, so to be recognized for these things, it's like just more people know it. It's not like I'm I'm an imposter. It's like, no, more people are seeing the things that I do. I've been working to be in this space for a very long time. I'm not faking it. I'm not like a person dressed up as a therapist. It's like, no, I'm really doing this. I'm really going to trainings. I'm really doing the work to be in this space. It's an honor, but I certainly don't feel like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm here. I'm like, wow, I'm here. Right. And what you talked about with the belief systems, I mean, that's really it. And that's what's so helpful. Sometimes having a therapist is really looking at your belief systems because changing your beliefs is just so powerful. And when you look at Carol Dweck's work with mindset and she can go into an inner city school and in a couple months, based on the way she's able to change the way they think about themselves She's able to change the results of what they do and the grades that they have based upon how she helps them think about who they are. And so it's a little bit daunting when we recognize all of a sudden that we do have beliefs in our subconscious that are so unhealthy. So how can we actually change them? Like people sometimes say, well, I I do affirmations or I do this, but it doesn't seem to really stick. So what have you seen that actually works to help a person change their belief system? I think affirmations are beautiful. I think writing in your journal is beautiful. I think meditating is beautiful, but none of those things will not work if you do not start to embody and do the things that you're saying. If you're saying, I am a wonderful person. Today is a great day. Go live your great day. Don't just say that. I think so many of us, we will write something down and it comes true or it becomes a thing for us because we're actually practicing that. 
If I write down, I am a New York Times bestselling author. I am now writing a book. I am writing a book that I think is worthy of that. I'm not writing that down and leaving it in a journal, but that's what many of us do. We'll affirm, we'll manifest, we'll say all these things, but we're not actually doing what we need to to make those things reality. And that is a really important piece. You cannot journal your way to better relationships. You have to practice being in better relationships. Please journal, please. I love it. Please get those feelings out and also act on the things you're writing about. Please manifest, please use affirmations, please meditate and do what, pray, do all of that stuff, but also live differently. Do make different choices when you feel like, oh, I want to cuss them out. Don't cuss them out. Don't do it. When it's a time for you to step for yourself and you're like, oh, I don't feel comfortable, stand up for yourself. That's how you live those affirmations. That's how you bring those journal pages to life. That's how you start to live boundaries and all of these other things that we write about, we meditate, pray, all of these things about. We want to be a living symbol of what we say and do. Yeah, that makes complete sense. When you are thinking about the women who are following your Instagram, the women who come to see you, the women who read this book, and I'm only talking about women right now because that's the majority of people listening. What do you want her to walk away with? Like, what's the one thing if you could like put something in her heart and she would absolutely hear this whisper and know it and embody it? What do you want her to know? We already know what feels best for us and our deepest work is learning to practice what we know. Yeah, that's true. We do. Like when you lay down at night, you hit your head on the pillow. You do know it. Mm -hmm. But we just don't necessarily practice it. We don't know that it's possible. We don't know that we can. It's true. What do you feel like is next for you? What's in your dream pot? What are you wanting to bring into the, into your life? I think writing more, which I'm consistently practicing, being able to talk to more people, reach more people, because I can consider Instagram and this book because you can get it at the library, a free resource. And it was my entry point. Books were my entry point. Podcasts were not a thing, but that could have been an entry point. Hearing someone say something on a podcast, seeing an interview on TV, those are the entry points to changing your lives, to therapy, being able to see someone talk about things. And you're like, oh my gosh, like I have that issue. So doing more and reaching more is what's next for me. You mentioned your Instagram and it is so beautiful because you're right. It is a free resource. And when it's used correctly, it's a very powerful tool. I've really curated the people I follow and every day there's so much beauty in there. So much. Mm -hmm. Not everybody grows their Instagram as big as you have. And it's because there's so much resonance in it, like watching you post and what you share and how you share it. Were you surprised? And if, whether you were or not, what have you noticed that really lands with people who are listening, who are reading? Why do you think it's grown so big so relatively quickly? I think the level of honesty and openness, some of my most popular posts are a bit controversial, but when you are being a therapist, one thing that you have to be is open-minded. So I don't have to support things to talk about them sometimes. Like I don't have to support people being dumped, but we're all going to be dumped by someone, right? So, you know, just not making people feel bad for the things that they do that aren't quite popular, right? Like we do things as humans. That's not nice. Sometimes we do, you know, get an attitude with people, but it doesn't mean you're a bad person. So being able to identify that, We all have bad moments. We all have these times where we are not at our best 
And it doesn't mean that we're bad people. It just means that we're continuing to grow and practice the tool. Maybe our stomach hurt that day and somebody got a little bit of moodiness, but you are a human being. And as a human, you will not be perfect. You will not get everything correct. My expectation of people is not that you're walking around like, hey, how are you? Great day. Like, you don't have to do that. But if you're mean to someone, could you maybe acknowledge that like, hey, the other day I was off. How do we accept who we are as humans and really be accountable? And I think my Instagram content speaks a lot to that, that we are humans, but we also have to be accountable <laughs> for our humanness, especially when it's impacting other people. And that's how we have healthier relationships with people. For someone to wrong you and then come back and say, I apologize for doing this, no matter what. And it might not even be to repair the relationship, but just to say, I was wrong at this time. I understand that the bridge is burned, but I just want you to know, just making amends can be so important. So how do we show up as practicing and accountable humans? It's so big what you're saying. And I do agree that that is one of the things that's such a gift that you're giving people we live in such a binary, like you're either all good or you're bad, or this person's canceled, or this person should never have said that, or I'll never text her back. And how we judge other people is how we judge ourselves. And then what happens is then there's no room for growth, right? There's Mm -hmm. no room to take accountability, which is so beautiful. When Marianne Mm -hmm. Williamson was on the show, I asked her at the end of the show, what's one thing that everyone is capable of doing today? that would bring more peace in the world. And she said, right now, make a list of three people that you're not on the best terms with. And whether you were right or they were right, it doesn't matter. Just reach out to them and let them know like you care about them and anything that you're responsible for, even if it was 90% them, just say, hey, like I just acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. I got off the... And I I texted three people. I felt like an actual ton of bricks was lifted from me. Mm. And it was really, really good. And there was this in the back of my mind, this resistance, this pain. There was still this tension of like, well, she shouldn't have said this and da, 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 da. And it was just like, no, that could be partly true. But by me setting down whatever I could own, oh my God. I was free because mm-hmm. I just had love to give at that point. I could forgive myself almost by acknowledging it. Like mm-hmm. by naming something you're doing, what are you really doing? You're letting go of the shame that you did it. Mm-hmm. You're like, you know, I don't love that I did that. And I really want to send that blessing to you. It's amazing because shame is really what gets in the way, right? And it's amazing how when we see other people, and they acknowledge things, how we just feel so, we feel so much like peace around it. Oh, just acknowledge it, right? Just say, you know what? I screwed up because we're all fallible. We all screw up and that's part of it. And so I love that you do make a space for that as opposed to, well, who would I be to post anything on Instagram unless I every single day do everything right and smile all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like, who even wants to be friends with that girl? It's exhausting. You don't want to be friends. You don't want to go to a girl's trip with this girl who's like perfect all the time because something's off. Like that's Mm -hmm. not really, it's not really a thing. Mm -hmm. We're here to grow. So I love that you're saying that. Tell everybody where they can buy this beautiful book. I know it's been out for a while, but it's still a book that everybody I think needs and where they can follow along and, and find you. The book can be purchased most places that books are sold. So Amazon bookshops, please support small book retailers. And you can find me on Instagram at Nedra Tawab or find my website, NedraTawab.com. So good. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing. You're so beautiful inside and out equally. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming on. I hope to stay connected and stay in touch. 
Oh my gosh, what an awesome conversation. Okay, here are the takeaways. Number one, we are the person who needs to jump in and fix the situation. We need to rescue ourselves. It's not up to anybody else to do that. Number two, it takes practice. We have to practice not always making people happy, not always saying the right words. You don't have to be perfect in your application. You don't have to get everything right the first time. Number three, you are enough because you're being called to do it. Number four, we are epic. We are great. We are remarkable. We are big human beings who can do amazing things, own it and live in that. Number five, affirmations, journaling and meditating are all beautiful, but none of those things will work if you do not start to embody and do the things that you're saying. It comes true when we're actually practicing that. Number six, live differently, make different choices. When you're facing something uncomfortable, stand up for yourself. That's how you live those affirmations. That's how you bring those journal pages to life. We want to be a living symbol of what we say and do. Number seven, we already know what feels best for us. Our deepest work is learning to practice what we know. And number eight, we all have times where we're not at our best, but it doesn't mean that we're bad people. It just means that we're continuing to grow. Thank you so much for listening. I know that you have a million things going on and it means so much that you're here. If you want to be sure to hear all the amazing episodes that we have coming, please follow along on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen because when you subscribe, of course, it's free to subscribe and you'll never miss anything. And you can tell us what you think if you leave us a review and a rating. It means a lot when you do that. It takes a couple minutes, but it does so much for us. So please review the show if it's something that means a lot to you. And if you want to get on the wait list, you can go to kathyheller.com slash wait list. You will not only hear about my coaching program and when the pre-sale starts, you'll be the first to know, but also you'll be able to hear about the next retreat that I'm doing in June. It's going to be three days at the Boca Raton Resort and it's going to be so beautiful. We're going to meditate. We're going to step into this limitless realm and you're going to come back feeling so refreshed and recharged and and kind of like you've just completely changed the scenery of your life. So you can go to kathyheller.com slash waitlist to find out all about that good stuff that's coming up. I love you. I'll leave you with a song and I'll talk to you soon. I could use a fresh coat of paint, change my scenery. Wake up in the morning and choose to be brave.